Good evening, and welcome to Calvary Chapel. I'm so glad to be here with you this evening. You know, the craziness of the week is broken up by a Wednesday night Bible study. Amen? Doesn't matter what you're going through or how spiritual you are, by Wednesday night, you need a Bible study. Right? I mean, midweek, I mean, we're just not that good. Getting through five work days or maybe six work days in some cases. You know, we just need that midweek. And I've always, listen, I've always been committed to a midweek study. Going back to 1986, I've always thought that we used to have Tuesday nights. And I always thought that it was my Tuesday night study that got me through the week. So I'm really glad to see all of you. This evening we're in First John and we're in chapter 2 and verse 28, where we left off last week. Now, what's great about this particular study in First John is the theme is fellowship in Christ. And so first we looked at the conditions for fellowship. Then last week we looked at the concerns that John had for fellowship. And now we are going to talk about the character of fellowship. The character of fellowship. To be in fellowship requires not just meeting the conditions in God's grace and not just addressing the concerns that could affect or prevent our fellowship, but actually making sure that the character of our fellowship is good, is godly, is what God wants. And there are certain keys to that. And the first thing we're going to look at today uh, is that we must live as children of God. We, we simply must live as children of God. That, that has to do with how we behave, how we, character, uh, how we carry ourselves, and the character that we exemplify in and through our lives. Uh, then we're going to look in the second part of our study today at the truth that we must not only live as children of God, but love as children of God. And that has to do with how we treat others. So how we behave and how we treat others That really gets to the the crux of the matter, which is the character of fellowship in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for being here this evening and having us come into a place where we're just able to enjoy fellowship and worship and prayer and praise and Bible study. Lord, we are so grateful for all that you provide for us here at Calvary Chapel, and we, we continue to ask that you would continue to do this work in and through our hearts as we gather on Wednesday evenings for Bible study, Sunday mornings for service and Bible study. Lord, just give us the ability to absorb like sponges as much as we can, and most especially and most importantly, that which your Spirit desires to speak to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, we must live as children of God, and children of God keep themselves pure. And how do they do that? Well, we're going to see that in just a minute. But they keep themselves pure, and they do this in anticipation of his coming. That Christ is coming again is the most significant motivator to keep yourself pure. Now notice, we're not saying perfect, because you never were perfect, so keeping yourself perfect is impossible. But pure, well, that is what the character of fellowship is all about. Let's look at the first two verses, <clears throat> excuse me, of our study this evening, in again, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So we're very much talking about living as disciples, continuing to live as disciples of Christ. There are many Christians that get off to a good start. You know, Samson got off to a pretty good start. 20-something years, he had a really good start. 
didn't finish so well. Yeah, I, I didn't really watch much of the Olympics this year. I, I very much like the Olympics, but I was just so turned off by so much of what was going on that I, I really didn't have an interest. I had no taste for it, to be honest, uh, with all the protests and the nonsense. But I do know this, that uh, when I watch gymnastics in particular, I know it really has to do with how you finish, how you stick the landing. You know, there are a lot of Christians that they do all these somersaults, they do all these things in their life, but when they get to the landing, they just flop. That is, at the end of their lives or throughout their lives, they never really stick the landing. That is, they talk a lot, they do a lot of things, but they don't finish well. Samson was like this. Most people don't remember the 20 good years of Samson's life. They remember the things that happened right at the end of his life. So what we want to do is we want to be encouraged by John and and through the Holy Spirit As we keep ourselves pure in anticipation of his coming, we want to be encouraged to continue living as disciples of Christ. I assume, if you know Christ, that you're living as a disciple. So you want to just continue doing that. That's not a very profound message, is it? Just continue doing what you're doing. Just continue. But, you know, that's better than anything else, because really, continue doing what you're doing means you're doing the right thing. Just don't stop. Continue living as a disciple of Christ. Because, you see, we're called to prepare ourselves for his return. We're called to prove ourselves by our actions. That is, we're not saved by what we do. But what we do proves that we're saved. It's sort of just, this is how we live, this is how we act. And so when he says these things, uh, you know, everyone that's righteous, if you, if you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right or is righteous has been born of him. That should be the characteristic of our lives. The character of fellowship is righteousness. That is, can I put it in simple terms? Doing the right thing. Not perfectly, just doing the right thing. So that you're not ashamed, so you can be confident when he returns. And so John encourages them to continue living as disciples of Christ. He goes on now to talk to them and encourage them to hold on to the hope of eternal life. How do you continue living as a disciple if you don't have hope? We know that the Holy Spirit has put hope in our hearts. He's he's poured out his love into our hearts, but he's given us a hope. It's a hope. It's a promise that he's coming again. Can I hear an amen? He's coming again. Couldn't that like happen next week and you'd be really happy? How about tonight? You wouldn't fight it. You wouldn't be upset because that's your hope. You're looking forward to it. So John encourages them to hold on to this hope. Don't let go of that hope. What's going to get you through these difficult times in our culture is holding on to the hope that he's going to return. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, yeah, but you know, we've been saying that for thousands of years. Well, if anything, we're that much closer. Don't lose hope. That's the only hope that we have. Look at verses one through three in chapter three. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Say amen. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That is, Christ is pure. So you see, it's this that motivates you to do the first thing. What was the first thing? Keep yourself pure. 
What motivates you to do this? What motivates you to continue as a disciple of Christ is that Christ is coming again for his church. Christ is coming again for you. And John encourages them to hold on to the hope of eternal life. Now, you notice there that it says we're children. Basically, you can break down children into two categories, biological children and adopted children. And parents know that biological and adopted is just a description of where the children came from. It doesn't change the heart of the parent. The parent doesn't love the biological child more than the adopted child. In fact, one could make a case, although it wouldn't be correct, to say that they were stuck with the biological one, but they chose the adopted one. But of course, that's not true. I I, I come from a family, five biological, four adopted. Okay? Family of nine, I'm the oldest. So I know something about this, and I can tell you that, yes, there's a difference between biological and adopted, but not in the sense that the parent loves the child any less, or even any more. The love isn't based on the status of that child being biological or being adopted. It's based on the love that the parent has for that child. And that is exactly what we're talking about here. See, we're the children of God through adoption, Paul talks a lot about this. And why are we adopted? Because of his great love for us. How great, how how great is the love the Father has lavished, I like that word, lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. Now, we're not God's biological children. We know this. We're his children by adoption. That is, he chose us as his children. And of course, we're rejected by the world, just as Christ was rejected by the world. The reason it doesn't know us, didn't know him, doesn't want to know him, doesn't not want to know us. So when you're rejected by the world, when the world hates you and despitefully uses you and, and comes after you and persecutes you and oppresses you and mocks you, you can know that, well, they treated Christ the same way. See, they're going to treat us the way they treated him. They rejected him, they reject us. But here's what our hope is. That's not our hope. That's that's the reality. Our hope is this, that we will be different than we are today when Christ returns. Can I hear an amen? See, anybody want to be different? Think about the worst character aspect of who you are. Like the thing that maybe you got a temper, maybe you, you just, you know, you give yourself over to certain desires. Think about the thing that you're most or least proud of, most annoyed with the things that you don't like about yourself, the things that the Holy Spirit has revealed that you struggle with, things that you're ashamed of. Listen, listen. We will be different than we are today when Christ returns. Aren't you glad? Can you imagine going into heaven in the condition you're in right now? I mean, you you wouldn't fit in, would you? I mean, he's holy, holy, holy. You're like, not, not, not. So the problem is we need to be changed. Now, we're to purify our hearts and purify ourselves now. That's an imperfect work. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts, but it's, it, you're never going to get to a place, where, oh, I'm holy now, I don't even need to change. I can, like, walk right into heaven. I don't need anything to change. No, that's, that's not the goal. But the day is coming when you and I, when we, will stand before the presence of God, and there'll be nothing about you that doesn't belong in heaven, all because Christ did the work. And that is... Listen, that is encouraging. I'm really looking forward to that. When we receive perfect bodies, when we receive a a heart for God that is unwavering, we know that we will be like Christ. That's what the scripture we read says. We're going to be like him. We're going to be like Christ. We're going to be the image of God. We were created in God's image, 
But see, then sin entered the human race, and so now we're a flawed representation of God. We're still made in God's image. However, we've tarnished that image by our sin and our rebellion and our rejection as the human race. Doesn't mean we're still not made in the image of God, but now we do damage to that truth because of our behavior. When sin is removed from our mortal bodies, when we are removed from our mortal bodies, when we stand before the presence of God, we will be different, and different is a good thing. We will be not different than Christ. We will be like Christ, the image of God, when he appears to us. Now that's a hope. That is truly a hope. And we're called to purify ourselves in Christ for the purity of his presence. There's things that we should be dealing with now that God will deal with in perpetuity, but I think there's things that we really want to address now so that we show and reveal in and through our lives the character of Christ in our fellowship. That, see, it's not an excuse to say, well, you know, I know I'm not going to be perfect, so I'm just going to go on being a sinner, and I know when I die I'll be like Christ. There may even be some truth to that, but that doesn't mean your heart is right before God. If you're going through life saying, well, God will clean me up and make me perfect when I'm in his presence, and you're not understanding what it means to love God. Because to love God is to obey God, to serve God. And I know we all fail. John started out by saying, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, right? We have Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And if anyone says he doesn't sin, he lies. The truth isn't in him. So we know that John isn't suggesting that we should aim for perfection. But purity is a realistic goal. Somebody say amen. Purity is a realistic goal. It is. I didn't say perfection. Purity. Purity of heart. Purity of mind. Purity of life. So that's what we're aiming for, to honor God. So children of God keep themselves pure. And why? Because Christ is coming again. But children of God don't choose to keep on sinning. They choose to do what is right. So when you're faced with a decision, and this is it, I've always said this, Christianity comes down to the decisions you make. If you make a decision to go to the right or the left, it should be based on your relationship with God. So let's say, I'm not even speaking politically right or left, I'm talking, let's say that sin is to the right and obeying God is to the left. We'll go to the left. And you need to make decisions in your life away from sin and towards God's word. Now, how do you suppose that's going to happen if you don't know God's word? How do you think that's going to happen if you don't pray your way through the application of God's word, meditating on God's word, memorizing scripture to whatever degree you can, reading it, studying it, learning it, applying it? See, I have come to the conclusion that while it's great to believe a lot of things and know a lot about God, the most important thing is living out God's word today. Living out God's word today. Don't worry about yesterday. Yesterday's behind you. Tomorrow, tomorrow will come. Today, today. So loving your brother today, when you have an opportunity, is living out God's word presently, today. So that is what we're talking about here. We're choosing not to keep on sinning, but to do what is right. Look what it says. And we'll look at just verses 4 and 5. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. Well, that's obvious, right? In fact, sin is lawlessness. We're living in an age of lawlessness, and we're living in an age of sin. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. 
See, that, that, that really says it all. I mean, John reminds them and us that the sinless Christ was sacrificed to forgive us of our sins. He, he gave his life so that you could be forgiven. It doesn't make you perfect in this life. It makes it possible for you to serve God with a pure heart and offers and establishes the hope that one day you will be made perfect in his presence. That's our hope, a hope not realized, because I'm not perfect yet. I know some of you may think I am, but you you know I'm not, right? You, You know you're not perfect. So listen, listen, we need to continue to purify our hearts before God, and we do that by making good choices. So we know that the sinless Christ was sacrificed to forgive us of our sins. Now, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know this, and we sin each and every time we choose to disobey God's word. So when you know the word of God says X and you do Y, you sin. It's that simple. And we need to make better choices. Now, I would say that there's a large percentage of the sins we experience in and through our lives that are by choice. There's a percentage of sin that is not by choice. That is, for example, you may try to be, really try to be good, and you're, and you're not because it's impossible. That's, that's a sin because you, you fail in your human nature. But when faced with a choice to steal something or to be angry at somebody or to, to give o- yourself over to your sinful desires and you choose what you know is wrong, well, that's what we're talking about here. We sin each and every time we choose to disobey God. In fact, John warns him not to be led astray from the truth of God's word in verses 6 in the first part of 7. He said, and in him is no sin, but no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Now, let's understand, it doesn't mean that no one who lives in him is like keeps on sinning. Like, so you're living in Christ, you're never going to sin again. If that were what he meant here, then none of what's written before this makes any sense. No one keeps on sinning. The idea is you keep on sinning with impunity. You say, no, it's okay. My sin's okay. Remember, he's writing about a group of people called the Gnostics, the know-it-alls, you might as well call them, who had suggested things like that, that, you know, oh, it's not sin. It's not sin because it's only what I do in my body. It's not my heart. So when he says keeps on sinning, the idea is continuing in that bad behavior, making those bad decisions, continuing to sin, and justifying it. If you're living like that, then it's true what it says in verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning like that, making excuses for their sin and unwilling to repent. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now, I've shared this with you before. The Gnostics said, we know him, we know this, we know that. You don't know, but we know. And he's telling us no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So you can say you know Christ, but if you continue in sin, unrepentant, justifying your sin. I've met people who justify their sin, and so have you. You point it out in God's word, and the reaction is, well, I don't believe that. Well, that can basically be summed up as, well, no one like you is in him. Because you're saying it's okay for you to keep on living this way. Now, you point out your sin to a brother who's in Christ, and you say, you know what you're doing? And they say, I know, brother, pray for me, because I don't want to sin. That's a different conversation, isn't it? So let's make that distinction. I don't want anyone to be condemned here. We're not talking about being condemned. So what we see here is in verse 6, again, it says, 
No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues in sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. See, the problem was there were people, the Gnostics, heretics, who were leading Christians away by promising them that God didn't care if they sinned. As long as they, in the spirit, love God, what they did in their bodies simply didn't matter. And you're thinking, that's foolish. Wait a minute. When you go to a church where the pastor teaches the word of God, but leaves out repentance, and leaves out the judgment for sin, and leaves out the definition of sin, they might as well be Gnostics. Because what they're encouraging you to do is come to church, feel good about yourself, but never take into consideration that maybe your behavior needs to change if you call yourself a Christian. So, hence, we're talking about the character of fellowship. I'm very disturbed and distressed by the character of fellowship in our culture today. It seems to me that many churches are more concerned to fill the pews than for people to be filled with the Spirit. It seems to me that many people are okay, many pastors are okay with people just continuing to come and never challenging them to make better decisions or to deal with their sin or to address those things. And that disturbs me. That distresses me. That bothers me. That is not the character of fellowship. The early church was being influenced by the lawlessness of these individuals. They denied the sin nature. They believed that the flesh and the spirit were essentially separate. They broke God's law with impunity and continued living in sin without repentance. And we see that today. They did not live in Christ. They had not seen him, nor did they know him. They were living a comfortable, worldly excuse for Christianity. You see, when we see Christianity, and it's, I'll give you a couple of examples. There's churches that you could live however you want. They'll never call you out on the carpet. Sexual sin, other types of sinful lifestyles. All they're concerned with is that you're right with God. God loves you. You love God. You love one another. But no one ever talks about that maybe, maybe, just maybe, you're living in sin and need to change. That might as well be Gnosticism. And the truth is, they're really not in him. How could they be? You know, there are many people, many people who go to church, and maybe they're searching for God, but the church they go to never introduces them to God. Not really. Certainly not to his word, not to the true meaning of God's word. It's repentance. It, it, it's God's love, but repentance, you know, we, we, we get saved through repentance. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow brings death. But godly sorrow should bring change. Are you not happy with the fact that you don't please God on a regular basis? You shouldn't be happy with that. Do you even think about it? These are the kinds of things that John wants them to think about. They did not live in Christ. They had not seen him, nor did they know him if they were living in this way. And so John warns him, don't be led astray by these people. Don't let anyone come and tell you, you can live contrary to God's word and still be his disciple, still be his child. It's just not true. Now, that doesn't mean, let me qualify, that when you fail to be the person that God has called you to be, that you cease to be his child. It simply means that if you know God and his word, you are going to try to live a life that pleases him. You're going to fail. But Jesus Christ, the righteous one, 
He is our advocate with the Father. So it has more to do with your attitude towards sin than anything else. Now, John identifies the children of God because, listen, what we're talking about, there are children of God, and then there's those who are not children of God. And he refers to them as the children of the devil. And that seems a little harsh, but it's still true because the devil sort of pushes the buttons of the world. And if you're living according to the world, remember we talked about that last week, if you're living according to the world and its desires and you're doing those worldly things, then can you really say you're a child of God? Especially if you're doing them with impunity. That is, you don't really care. Your brand of Christianity is this, I do what I want and God loves me. That is not a truth that I can get behind. I'll say it this way. You can show me a man who's broken by his sin, and his sin can be ten times worse than someone who's not. And I would say that the person who sins more is saved, and the person who doesn't sin all that much but isn't affected probably isn't. You see, it has to do with your heart for God. It has to do with your attitude towards sin. So, what we see here is that John identifies the children of God versus the children of the devil. So let's look at the latter part of verse 7. John sums it up this way. He who does what is right is righteous. Notice it doesn't say you have to be perfect, but he who does what is right. When you're facing those decisions, you make the right ones. Just as he is righteous, that is just as Jesus is righteous. Now, he who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning. It doesn't mean he doesn't sin. We've established that already. He can't just go on sinning and and say it's okay. Because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Now, he's really singling out these individuals because they didn't love others and they didn't do what was right. And they made all kinds of excuses, even made up doctrines in order to justify their sin. I guess what it comes down to is what is your attitude towards sin? Do you say the same thing about sin that God says? Do you confess your sin? Remember how this book opened up in chapter 1? If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and purify you from all unrighteousness. John's not saying you have to be perfect. He's not saying you're not going to continue to sin. In fact, he said to the contrary in chapter 1, if we confess our sins. And notice in verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. So don't misinterpret this. Interpret this properly. You are a sinner. You are going to continue to sin. Because you're a sinner. Until you're like him in his presence, you are going to sin. But I want to encourage you. John wants to encourage you. Confess your sins. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. That's not keeping sinning. That's not to go on sinning. That's that's not the definition of keep sinning. No, not at all. And that's what we see here. Now, the children of God are easily recognized by their lifestyle. They choose to do what is right. They, they follow Jesus' example. They're born of God. We say born again, but born of God. Of God's seed. That is, they belong to God, and therefore they cannot go on sinning 
not in this way. The children of the devil can be clearly identified by their lifestyle as well. Now, we don't judge people, but if someone goes around living contrary to God's word and says, ah, it doesn't matter what the Bible says, I can't say you're a child of God. I can say you're a child of the devil. John does. That we see. So, they choose, the children of the devil choose to do what is sinful. They follow the devil's example. Now, remember that the devil has been sinning from the very beginning of creation. Go back to Genesis 3. And the Son of God came to earth to destroy the work of the devil. So, who do you belong to? They're not born of God, therefore they just go on sinning. Of course, they're not even convicted. They they do not choose to do what is right. They, They do not choose to love their brothers. And that is how you know someone is not a child of God. And if you're not a child of God, you're a child of the devil. It's that simple. There really only are two groups of people when it comes right down to it. Well, we've talked about living as children of God. Let's talk about loving as children of God. So many times people want to talk about how being a Christian means you love people. And it is absolutely true. Notice, though, it started with your lifestyle. It started with living a pure life. And now we're talking about loving others. But sometimes people will just talk about loving others. Oh, I love other people, therefore I'm a Christian. It starts with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then you love your neighbor as yourself. So we've already dealt with the first part. Let's look at the second. Children of God know that they're called to love one another. You know that. But children of God know that. There's no, there's no question in their minds. In fact, look at verses uh, 11 through 13. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. You know, I see a lot of Christians awfully surprised right now that the world hates us. You know what surprises me? That the world ever liked us. You know what surprises me and concerns me? That for many, many, many years, it seemed like the church just kind of hung on there and the world didn't really bother with us. They really, if they, if they hated us, they certainly didn't say anything about it. And if they loved us or liked us, well, you know, it was really more an issue of maybe we weren't preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or maybe we weren't making the distinction between living for God and not living for God. Maybe it was easier for us to just sort of take an attitude of, oh, well, you know, everybody's a Christian. You're born a Christian. And I think we did that for many decades in this country. And now you can't do that because now you're in or you're out. And that's actually a good thing as it relates to being a Christian. So we know that we're not to follow the example of Cain. You all know who Cain is, right? First murderer. Well, if you don't include Satan. First murderer. Cain took his brother's life. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 4. We're told he belonged to Satan. We're told he belonged to the evil one, that he didn't belong to God. Well, he did murder his brother, and he followed Satan's example. His brother Abel was obedient to God. And Abel's obedience, the way he lived his life, rebuked Cain's disobedience to God. See, as Abel lived the way a God had called him to live, Cain, who wasn't, looked at Abel and was convicted by his lifestyle, by his character. 
Here's what happens in a Cain. They either look at Abel and say, you know, I want to be more like Abel. Or they say, I got to kill that guy because looking at him makes me feel bad about myself. Have you noticed that, that people who've killed Christians through the centuries probably did so because they didn't want to be convicted? I don't want to look at that guy. He's, he's too good. He shows me what I'm supposed to be and that I don't want to be and I don't want to see it. So can we just kill him? Burn him at the stake. Behead him. Hang him. Get rid of him. Send him off to somewhere else. Put him in prison. As long as I don't have to hear the truth of God's word, I'm good. Well, that's a child of the devil and that's what Cain was. You see, Abel, he offered a blood sacrifice. One of the flock. Cain, he offered the work of his hands. See, what Cain wanted to do is say, I want to come to God on my terms. I will be judged by God on the basis of my works, my actions. But God said, you're not going to be judged on the basis of your actions and your works. You're going to be based, your relationship with me is based on a blood sacrifice. You have to slay a lamb to cover your sins until I will send a lamb who will take them away. It was a symbol of what God would do. So Abel was worshiping God acceptably. Cain came up with an idea that I think is is, is sort of prevalent today. Well, you ask somebody, how do you know God is going to accept you? They always tell you something like this. Well, you know what? When I die, I'm going to go before God, and they're going to measure all my good works against all my bad works. You're counting on that, huh? That's not going to work out, I can tell you right now. Because... Your bad works are so bad, there's no good that you can do to outweigh them. And that is not the standard. The standard is perfection, not having any bad works whatsoever. So that, that's not going to work for you anyway. But Cain, he, he went along that, with that idea. Abel understood that. He, he knew a blood sacrifice was required. And the world will hate us for the same reason that Cain hated Abel. When you live... Your life for God, according to God's word, the canes of this world will look in on you and look at your life, and they're going to come to this conclusion. This guy needs to go. Because the way that he, the way that she lives, convicts me and makes me realize I'm not living right before God. And I don't want to, I don't want to feel that way. I don't want to feel bad about myself. I want to live the way I want to live. And looking at this Abel over here makes me realize I need to change, and I don't want to change. So let's fire him. Let's kill him. Let's get him out of here. That's what the world is doing today. It hates us. But just understand why. Because you remind them of Jesus Christ. Either by your actions or your lifestyle or the things you preach or the things you do or don't do. Have you ever noticed that when you tell people who are about to go out and sin and have a good time, I'm sorry, I don't. I don't drink, or I don't party, or I don't do this, or I don't do that. You ever notice their reaction? It's, it's striking that they, they get annoyed. Why should they care, really? Think about it. Why should they care what you do? No, but they get annoyed because they want you to party with them. Because then they know, oh, I'm okay. I'm good with God. But when you say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian. I don't, I don't do that kind of thing. They're like, ah! What is it that makes them so mad? It's the same thing that made Cain so angry. Your relationship with God convicts them. And you know what? They must know it's true. Because why would they care if it wasn't? Think about it. 
when you when you don't really care what somebody else does, I don't care what he does. He does what he does. You know, whatever. But they obviously do, because that kind of hate is born in the heart of someone who knows better and doesn't do better. And that's what we see. So, the world will hate us for the same reason that Cain hated Abel. Expect it. If they treated Jesus this way, they'll treat us the same way. And we know that we have eternal life, right? You know that, right? Say amen. You have eternal life. It's not because of anything you do or don't do. It's because God loves you and you've given your heart to him, so you have eternal life. And this is what we learn in verses 14 and 15. We know that we have passed from death to life. Say amen. You've passed from death to life. Because we love our brothers. You know, it doesn't surprise me when people hate their brothers. It surprises me when they love them. When I see someone truly love someone else, I say, this is a work of God. Because only God can do that in your heart. And so we learn, as it says here, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. That doesn't mean you can't be forgiven of murder, but someone who continues to murder in his heart has not experienced eternal life. Loving our brothers confirms that we are God's children. Not loving our brothers confirms We are not God's children. Very simple, actually. Hating your brother is murdering your brother in your heart. We know that that is what Jesus taught in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, in the Sermon on the Mount. If you hate someone, you've murdered them in, in your heart. See, murderers, apart from repentance and God's forgiveness, are damned. Condemned. Actually, any sinner is condemned apart from the love of God. How do you experience the love of God? Through repentance, confession of sin. But murder is just more of a striking example, I think, and it it gets to our hearts and follows that idea of Cain and what he did to Abel. Now, children of God know that they're called to love one another, but children of God know what love is. And how do they know? What is love? It's through the example of the love of Jesus Christ that we know what love is. If you ever want to know what love looks like, look at Jesus. He's the love of God, personified. So if you have any questions about what it means to love, you need to look to Jesus. You know, there's that catchphrase, what would Jesus do? But when you look at the way Jesus loves others, it's pretty easy to see we need the Holy Spirit to do likewise. And so we are to follow the example of Christ who gave his life for his brothers. Look at verses 16 through 17. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? See, that's just a litmus test. That just shows you your heart. If you've ever seen someone in need and felt motivated to do something about it, not for guilt or show, but because you just felt God was was calling you to do it, You're a child of God. And if you have no concern whatsoever, you might want to think about whether or not you belong to him as his child. I mean, whose heart isn't broken right now as we see the state of the world in Afghanistan and other places? Whose heart is not broken as we look at the state at the border? Whose heart is not broken as we see what what happens in areas with flooding and hurricanes, forest fires? How can you look at those things and not feel 
for those people. And when we have opportunity to bless, we bless as the Lord leads. We certainly can bless our brothers and sisters in our immediate area very easily. But that we know we are supposed to follow that example. And it includes living selfless lives that benefit those around us. Are you living your life to benefit just you? Is it all about you? Because it shouldn't be. God will meet your needs, and it's okay for your needs to be met. But how much of your life, how much of your energy, how much of what you do and what you say and how you live is about others? You know, we we have these little stickers. They're in the hallway back here uh, that we got a number of years ago from Pastor Gail Irwin. They just say others. And I've seen people driving in the area, and I know they're probably from this church. They have the others on their bumper. You know what's great about that? You can't have others on your bumper or on your car or in your car window and cut somebody off. If you do, the truth isn't in you. Think about it. Others, get out of my way. Others, me first. Others. It's really, really important that we live that way. That's how Christ has called us to live. It also includes providing for those in need as God has blessed us. You know, my wife and I talk about this all the time. The biggest problem we have in our culture is we have way too much. We all say it, but it's true. You sometimes hear, oh, that's a first world problem. You know, like a first world problem. What's your problem? I got a ding in my car door. That's a first world problem. People would be glad to have a, a, a car ding or not. But we, we have a, you know, oh, what other problem do you have? I didn't get the promotion. You can still pay your bills. Everything's great. But no, I didn't get the promotion. When you hear people to complain about some of these things, yeah, that's a first world problem. I would like to say that sometimes. I mean, we don't really have any problems when you think about it. I know what you're saying. You got problems. We all got, put it in perspective. Do you really have problems? Not, not like somebody, you know, living in a situation, uh, and maybe some of you do have legitimate issues, and, and I appreciate that, but let's just put it in perspective. I mean, really, do we, do we really, in our culture today, can anybody really say they're poor? I mean, some have a lot, maybe way too much. Some may be struggling, but... Are any of us really, can we really be described as poor? I'll leave that to you to answer, but what I know is true. We need to provide for those in need. So as we see people in need, well, God has blessed us. Let's bless others. Amen? And look at verse 18. This is kind of a mantra, if you will. I like this. It's a good memory verse. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. That is, just don't talk about it, do it. Verse 18 says it all. We are to truly love others by our actions, not with empty words. Let your words, well, let your life speak for yourself. Let let your words be few, but let your life speak for itself. Okay, children of God, they know what love is, but they also know that they belong to Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. You belong to him. You do. You belong to him. You know, how you live affects where you come from, in a sense. Like, for example, your parents. Your life can bring shame or blessing to your parents based on the things you do or don't do. You know, if you get arrested and your face is in the paper, that affects your parents. They didn't do the the, the crime. They didn't do the thing that you did. But it affects them. It reflects on them. I think we need to know that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And we belong to him. Therefore, as we live, so we bring a, 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 
an attention to the Lord that is both damaging to the reputation of Christians in the church and not honoring to God if we don't obey him. Conversely, if we live according to God's word, we honor God. So you need to think about that. How you live either honors or dishonors God. So what we see here in verses 19 through 22 is the children of God know they belong to Jesus Christ. 19 through 22 says, This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Does that sound like you're you're stressed out? Setting your heart at rest in his presence? That sounds like somebody who's pretty confident. Whenever our hearts condemn us. See, sometimes our hearts do condemn us. Sometimes we know who we are and yet... It is possible for our hearts to be at rest in his presence, even though our hearts condemn us. See, that's what we're talking about. This is by grace, not by works. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. God is greater than our hearts. Aren't you glad? Your heart's wicked, deceitfully wicked. Above all things, who can know it? God knows your heart. God is greater than your heart. And his work in your heart is an eternal work of redemption. So we have peace. We have peace in his presence, despite our unworthiness, but it's by his grace. See, in our hearts, we may sometimes feel condemned. Why? Because we sin, because of our sin. But God's grace is sufficient, amen? That is, it meets every one of our needs. It's far greater than our sinful hearts. He is all-knowing, yet, you know something? He knows everything, yet he's chosen to forgive and forget your sin. He's chosen to forgive your sin. He knows everything, and yet he doesn't even want to think about your sin. The Bible says he separates it as far as the east is from the west, hides it behind his back, casts it to the bottom of the sea, the sea of forgetfulness. He doesn't even want to think about your sin, yet he knows everything. He's chosen not to dwell on that truth. Why do you? If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and purify your heart. Purify your heart. Purify you. So, so, so when you dwell on what God has forgotten, does that sound like a waste of time to you? Because it is. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and purify you from all unrighteousness. So don't dwell on those things. It doesn't mean you don't obey God, but it means you obey God by confessing your sin and knowing that he'll forgive you. It's by God's grace that you have a relationship with him. We have confidence before God because of our obedience to his word. Now understand, we have confidence because of our obedience to his word, and and, and it starts with confessing your sins. But, But obedience to God's word means, I believe what God's word says about me and my sin. I agree with this book. It's been said that sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. We need to be in God's word. Look what it says, verses 20 through, 21 through 22. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Nobody here should be condemned in their hearts. Because God will purify your heart if you confess your sins. Oh, but I, 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 I just feel so condemned. Have you confessed your sins? Well, Pastor, I, no. Have you confessed your sins? Well, you, no. Confess your sins. And then you won't feel that condemnation. Because you'll be saying the same thing about sin that God says. Notice he says, 
if our hearts, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Not perfection, purity, living for God. Just doing your best, trying to do what's right, make the right decisions, recognizing when you don't, asking God for forgiveness when you fail and when you sin. We're not talking about walking on water here. We're talking about allowing God to purify your heart by his grace and the power of the Spirit. We have confidence before God as Christians because we obey his word. We say the same thing about sin that his word says. Our hearts do not and cannot condemn us before God's presence. There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. You need to know that. Read that. Read that. Understand that truth. If we receive anything, we ask of him, well, what does that mean? Well, what are you asking for? Oh, God, bring more sin in my life. I don't think God's going to answer that prayer. But we receive anything we ask of him as we obey his word according to his will. If what you're asking is, is in obedience with his word and according to his will... We have it. God's not going to withhold any good thing from you. If he's withholding it, it might not be the right time, or it may not be as good as you think it is. There are things that God doesn't do in our lives that we think, well, that's just mean. Why God won't do that? I don't understand. And then maybe years later, maybe not, maybe in eternity, we find out, man, if God had done that, boy, would I have been a disaster for me. Can you imagine? How many, how many of those stories have we seen? How many of those skits have we seen where somebody got exactly what they wanted? Does it ever end well? Three wishes. How come that never works well? You know, they get themselves in trouble with the first two, and thank God they got the third. That's how they get themselves out of it, and guess what? You're back where you started. In every one of those you know, plays, every one of those skits, every one of those uh, shows or episodes we see that give... You know, the the genie appears and he gives the wishes and then it's just a disaster. So don't be surprised when God says, I can't do that. You'd blow up the world if I did that. You'd certainly blow yourself up. You'd ruin your life. And I love you too much to allow that to happen. Children of God know this because they understand we receive anything we ask of him as we obey his word according to his will. And that leaves us off in verse 22. Then we pick it up in verse 23, just one verse. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said these are the two great commandments, right? All the law and the prophets, all the scripture hangs on these two things. Listen, Adam and Eve were given one command. Don't do this which they did. Then through Moses, they were given a lot of commands, but the majority of them were summed up in ten. Ten commandments. And we all know how that works out, because who keeps the ten commandments, right? Jesus comes, fulfills the ten commandments, lives the ten commandments, and then gives us two. And you know what's great about the two commandments? If you look at all the ten, they, they, they break down into these two. You're either loving God or loving your neighbor as yourself. If you can look at all the ten commandments, it's basically loving God or loving your neighbor as yourself. So like, for example, not committing adultery. Well, that's loving your neighbor as yourself, not stealing, right? 
Honoring the Lord on the Sabbath day. Honoring the Sabbath day. Oh, that's loving God. Not having any other gods, right? Loving God. Not using the name of the Lord in vain. Loving God. It all breaks down roughly four into one category and six into the other. Can you do it? Well, apart from God, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And we know that we have to take it a step further. It's not just not committing adultery, but not committing adultery in our hearts. Not just not committing murder, but not committing murder in our hearts. So we know that we have a long way to go. But wait a minute. Remember, this isn't about us. It's about pleasing God. We know that we're called to believe in Christ and to love one another. That's it. Those are the two things we need to really focus in on. That's all we need to focus in on. Everything else is summed up in that. And we please God by obeying his command to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Notice what it says again, verse 23. This is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. You believe in God? Say amen. And to love one another as he commanded us. Oh, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's hard. That's difficult. That's challenging. Especially when that person you're called to love is annoying and hateful and maybe even evil at times you know just like you so you see the thing is it is all about putting our faith in jesus and loving one another and finally in verse 24 we must love as the children of god and children of god know that god lives in them this is the hope god lives in them and he lives in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. I've alluded to it. I'm going to flat out say it. If you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life, you don't know God. And if you do know God, the Holy Spirit is in your life. But here's the problem. How much of the Holy Spirit is working in your life has to do with your submission to him. But God has given us everything we need to live righteously in him. You don't believe that? It's true. It's true. He has. Look what it says in verse 24. Those who obey his commands live in him. Those that obey his commands live in him. That is to say, if you don't live in him, you can't obey his commands. Those that obey his commands live in him. And he in them, amen. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So, do you have a Holy Spirit in your heart? If you gave your life to Christ, you do. I want you to think about it this way. You can have a 100-watt bulb, or let's say a 1,000-watt bulb, burning brightly. But if you cover it with a box, nobody's going to know. We all have the Holy Spirit in us by faith. We do. But are you covering it? That is, are you letting it out? Are you, are you letting God's Spirit work in and through your life? Because if you do, you're going to obey his commands. That's what's going to happen. People are going to see that and gonna say, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's going on here? Who is this guy? Well, it's not me. It's the Holy Spirit working in and through me. See, we prove that we live in him by obeying his commands, but we can't obey his commands apart from God's spirit. Obeying his commands is only possible because we live in him. And we can only live in him by the spirit of God. I know these are profound truths, but they're hopelessly simple, really. They're not complicated. I always like to say, John doesn't speak to the head. He speaks to the heart. If you try to absorb these in your head, you're going to be like, okay, well, what does he mean by that? It really isn't that complicated. He, he speaks in a wisdom literature kind of a way, but the truth of what he's saying shouldn't be hard for us to understand, and it isn't. It is his life in us that empowers us to obey his commands. So you do you have his life in you? Well, how do you experience that? The Holy Spirit. We know that he lives in us by his Holy Spirit. 
who we're told he gave us. Gave, past tense. He gave us. If you call him Lord, you can't call him Lord but by the Spirit. You don't need to go out and get another Jesus or another Spirit or another Father or another Bible. You just need to take the salvation and the joy and the gifts of the Spirit that God has bestowed upon you and filled you with and let it out. Or have you forgotten the child's song, This Little Light of Mine? I'm going to let it shine. You know what's great about that? Second verse, same as the first. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And then in case you forgot the first part, you only need to remember the second part. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Brothers and sisters, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, it confirms that we're God's children. You know the number one way I know I'm a Christian and that I belong to God? God does stuff through my life that I can't do. God does stuff through my life that I might not have even wanted to do before I came to know him. God does stuff in and through my life that's impossible, and yet he does it. See, the fruit of God's spirit in our lives confirms we're the children of God. And the gifts of the spirit, the empowering, the enabling to serve God, that in my life confirms that I'm God's child as well. So look at the gifts of the spirit. Look at the fruit of the spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, goodness. If you're seeing that in your life, even a little bit, even a fraction, even like a little pen light coming out of your life, you know that it's God because you ain't that good. In fact, you're no good. And if God has gifted you and you start to do things and you start to see God working and through your life despite your miserable self, wait a minute. Take a moment and realize you're God's child. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. It is so simple, really. God is light. You dwell in us. And therefore, we can become the light of the world because you're the light of the world in us. Simple pictures, word pictures that a child could understand. We complicate them, but Lord, we know that it's true. You desire to live in us and through us. We desire to have you live in us and through us as well. And so we ask by the power of your spirit that you give us the power, the ability to be the people that honor you and please you. We know that we'll never be perfect, but help us to be pure, to live lives for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.